0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I mentioned in the last episode that most commentators identify chapter 7, verse 1 as the start of a new section in the letter. It is a hinge of sorts wherein Paul moves from discussing his concerns based on the interviews he conducted with the Corinthian messengers to their concerns as contained within the letter that they sent. And you can see that hinge for yourself in chapter 7, verse 1. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote. So in chapter 7, Paul deals with the first of their questions having to do with sexuality and marriage. And here in chapter 8... He appears to move on to their second question, now concerning food offered to idols. Somewhat surprisingly, Paul spends three full chapters answering this question. In chapter 8, he deals with their question, but he uses their question to establish a process and a set of priorities for making all manner of difficult decisions about doubtful things within the body of Christ. In essence, He says that the exercise of our liberty as believers must be governed not by our knowledge, but by our love, meaning that a mature Christian does not do all that he can understand, but rather only that which serves and protects the weaker brother or the weaker sister. Paul then illustrates that principle from his own life in chapter 9, and then in chapter 10, he turns to the history of Israel in order to make the point that fruitfulness and reward are never guaranteed. Many people get off to a great start, but fail to do much of eternal value because they lack self-control. You have to keep your eye on the prize. You have to care more about the mission than you do about your immediate privileges and pleasures. That's where the argument will land. But for now, we begin at the beginning. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning with verse 1. Now, concerning food offered to idols... In 1st century Roman Corinth, almost all meat would have been associated with idol worship to some extent or another. We need to remember that in the ancient world, people did not eat meat as regularly as they do today. Meat was mostly for special occasions, the fulfilling of a vow, or the celebration of a feast day, or a holy day. And thus, the most common place to eat meat would have been in one of the large eating areas associated with one of the pagan temples. We have invitations, actually, from the Roman world, wherein a wealthy individual invites some friends to join him in the courtyard of a local temple to share in the meat associated with one of his particular sacrifices. F.F. Bruce, for example, shares one of these invitations in his commentary. It says, Kyramon invites you to dine at the table of the Lord Serapis at the Serapion, tomorrow the 15th at the 9th hour, closed quote. That's the ancient equivalent of a neighborhood barbecue. How exciting. The, the problem, though, is that before the barbecue, prayers would be made to Serapis, and you would be expected to politely bow your head. And then, of course, there is the fact that the rest of the carcass would have been burned on the altar to Serapis as part of some sort of vow or worship offering. And so the question naturally arose. Is it appropriate for Christians to involve themselves In such affairs. Now, on the one hand, we do want to be salt and light, don't we? Therefore, we mustn't allow fear and ignorant sensitivities to keep us on the sidelines when there is so much urgent work needing to be done. That was one side of the argument. But on the other hand, There were some stories in the Bible that suggested a certain caution with respect to these sorts of gatherings. Who can forget the story of the Baal of Peor? In that story, some very nice young ladies from the neighborhood invited the young men of Israel to a backyard barbecue that degenerated into a giant pagan orgy. That's not even close to being an exaggeration. You can read that story for yourself in Numbers 25. In verse 5 of that chapter, God called the nation to account. He said, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. In the judgment of God, this decision by the chiefs to allow the young men to participate in this particular festival was so terrible that the whole lot of them had to be executed on the spot. That story is in your Bible. And so... We can well imagine that at least some members of the church in Corinth were eager to get an opinion from the Apostle Paul on this matter. That's the backstory behind their question in verse 1. I'll read it again and then carry on with Paul's answer. Now, concerning food offered to idols. we, We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The ESV assumes here, and I think rightly, that Paul is quoting back to them some of the words and phrases they used in their letter. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If the ESV is correct, then we can backwards engineer, as it were, the original letter, or at least make the attempt. Their letter must have gone something like this. Dear Paul, we are facing a very difficult situation here in Corinth we have to figure out how to handle this whole issue of pagan festivals, whether we should go or not. Of course, those of us with knowledge understand that there is no such thing as a pagan idol, but we have some weak and sensitive souls among us who are slowing the rest of us down. Would you be able to set them straight? Thanks ever so much, your loving friends in Corinth. (laughs) Oh yes, Paul replies, we all possess knowledge, don't we? usually just enough knowledge to make us dangerous to everyone around us. That's the gist of what the ESV is trying to communicate by means of these quotation marks. Now, of course, Paul doesn't denigrate knowledge here or anywhere else. In 1 Corinthians 1, verses 4 to 5, he says, "...I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge." So knowledge is a good thing, Paul says, and I'm very glad that you have it, but it isn't quite as important as you all seem to think. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul will make this same point again, saying, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. So knowledge without love is worth nothing. In essence, the Corinthians have done here the same thing that they've done elsewhere with the gift of tongues. It will become clear as we read through the letter that just as they have overestimated knowledge, so too they have overestimated tongues. And so Paul responds by deprioritizing. He doesn't denigrate or deny, but he does demote. And interestingly, in both cases, he promotes love. We'll see that in chapter 13. Right in the middle of a conversation about spiritual gifts, there is this seemingly out-of-place chapter on love. But it's not out of place, actually. It is perfectly placed because what Paul is doing is rearranging the priorities of the Corinthian church. He's saying, you have spiritual gifts in the front seat and you have tongues behind the wheel, but you've left love in the trunk. And so what Paul is doing here is rearranging the car. We're going to put love behind the wheel. We're going to put spiritual gifts in general in the back seat, and we're going to put tongues in the trunk. We're not kicking it out of the car, but we are significantly downgrading the importance that you have attached to it. And that's what Paul is doing here. He is demoting knowledge as the be-all and end-all with respect to these difficult decisions about doubtful things. Paul's fundamental point is that love must set the limit on the exercise of our Christian liberty, not knowledge. We don't do everything we understand. We do only whatever will best serve and protect our weaker brother. Knowledge puffs up, whereas love builds up. He continues the argument in verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Here again, we can see Paul correcting their whole approach to knowledge. If your knowledge makes you unloving, then it isn't worth nearly as much as you think it is. Then Paul goes on to speak about the most valuable type of knowledge in verse 3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. The pillar commentary is very helpful here. Commenting on verses 2 to 3 collectively, it says... The point is that they are infatuated with abstract theological or philosophical knowledge, but remain woefully deficient in their knowledge and love of God. True theological understanding, and certainly true knowledge of God, does not lead one to act in a way which is insensitive to others and offensive to God. Closed quote. So the Corinthians were accumulating treasures of lesser value, all the while neglecting to pursue the ultimate treasure of intimacy with God through Jesus Christ. That is the sort of knowledge that matters most. Now, having demoted knowledge, Paul returns to the question at hand. I'll read the remainder of the argument as recorded in verses 4 to 13. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. The assumption here is that one faction in the church at Corinth was arguing for free participation in these pagan feasts and festivals. After all, we know that there is only one God, and there is no reality whatsoever to these pagan idols, and thus there is no compelling reason for us not to participate, particularly given the obvious evangelistic opportunity that these gatherings represent. That was the argument. And Paul concedes a great deal of it. He says, yes, of course, you are right. An idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. So you're correct, he says. These poor people are terribly deceived, and there is no pagan God cursing your T-bone steak. Food in and of itself does not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. So you're right, as far as your knowledge goes. But there are a few factors that you fail to consider. First of all, you failed to consider the impact of your decision upon the weaker brother. He says that in verse 7. You know all these wonderful things. You have really excellent theology. But not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. You know that there is no reality to that idol. Good for you. But they don't know that. Baby Christians haven't had time to put all that together. Many years ago, when I was working in India with a mission group serving the victims of the AIDS epidemic, I heard a fascinating testimony from an older widow who was involved with the program. Her son and daughter-in-law had both died from AIDS, and so she was raising her two grandchildren and being assisted by the ministry. She came to the microphone and she said through a translator, When my son died and his wife, the Hindu gods did nothing to help us. Our neighbors and family members shunned us, but the Christian God, Jesus, he took pity on us. He sent these people to care for us, and so now I worship him. Now, that's not very good theology, but it is exactly the sort of testimony that you would expect from a baby Christian being saved out of a pagan culture. That's the sort of story you might have heard on the Lord's Day in the church at Roman Corinth. And Paul is saying here, All you strong and fancy people with your marvelous theology and your massive sense of entitlement, have you given thought A to how your actions might be affecting this poor woman who is just starting out in her Christian journey? Have you thought about that? What if she sees you nodding your head at the pagan prayers and eating your pagan sandwich, which you know has no objective connection with a pagan god because you know that there are no pagan gods. You know that, but she doesn't know that. And so won't your actions bring terrible spiritual harm upon this sister, the sister for whom Christ died? That's the issue. And that's why knowledge in and of itself cannot be the deciding factor in these sorts of deliberations. It's not just about what you know or what you think you know. It's about how your actions influence other people, particularly the younger and weaker brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. That's what Paul says in verse 11. And that changes the equation entirely a mature believer would never choose food and drink over the spiritual well-being of a younger sibling in Christ. And so Paul concludes in verse 13 by saying, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Again, the principle here is that we don't do as much as we understand. Rather, we do only what serves, benefits, and protects our weaker brother. Love is the check on the exercise of Christian liberty, not knowledge. A point Paul will go on to illustrate powerfully by reference to his own life and ministry in chapter 9. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to End of the Word. If you are interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over at the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook. I hope that you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. I'd love to see you there. And I hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.